HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome opera singer Jamie Barton. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Jamie about Bon Appetit, the operetta making Julia sing. And we'll hear Jamie's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We send our best to everyone coping with the pandemic, and an extra special thank you to all the essential workers helping us get through. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Today, our inspiration is literally Julia as inspiration. While Julia's accomplishments, triumphs, as she would say, are well known, what you may be less familiar with is all the other creative work Julia has inspired. There are plays, doctoral theses, and countless books, including more than one about Julia's love of cats. There is now a scripted television series in the works, and 2021 will bring a new feature-length documentary about Julia's life from the producer-directors of RBG and Imagine Entertainment. Joining us today is someone channeling that inspiration right down to an in-the-flesh performance as Julia in the operetta Bon Appetit. Before we introduce her, a little bit of background. And let's go all the way back to 1986, when Julia was very much still in her prime. And it was then that American composer Lee Hoiby crafted an operetta for his friend, the actress Jean Stapleton, best known for playing Edith Bunker in the hit television series All in the Family. 
The libretto, written by Lee Hoiby's partner and collaborator, Mark Scholgasser, is a verbatim reprise of what Julius said in episode 228 of The French Chef. The piece debuted at the Kennedy Center Honors in 1989 as one of a set of six short operas. It has continued to be performed everywhere from community centers to major opera houses and is now being presented as part of the Houston Grand Opera's HGO digital series starring multi-award-winning mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton as Julia. Named the 2020 Personality of the Year at the BBC Music Magazine Awards, Jamie Barton is an internationally celebrated opera singer and activist for women and queer rights, body positivity, and inclusivity in the arts. In addition to being a Grammy nominee, she's performed with many of the world's great opera houses and symphony orchestras, everywhere from the Metropolitan Opera in New York to the Lyric Opera of Chicago, in addition to the Houston Grand Opera, New York Philharmonic, and Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, to name just a few. And outside the U.S., she's performed at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra and Iceland Symphony Orchestra, among many, many others. She's even appeared with Yo-Yo Ma and Emmanuel Axe at the Tanglewood Music Festival, and her debut solo album, All Who Wander, features songs by Mahler, Dvorak, and Sibelius. Her latest album, Unexpected Shadows, a collaboration with American composer Jake Hedgie, was released this year by Pentatone. Jamie joins us today to talk about playing Julia in the HGO digital presentation of Bon Appetit. Welcome to the podcast, Jamie. Hi there, Todd. Thank you for having me. We're so thrilled you could be on. This is going to be so fun. <laughs> so Lee Hoiby once said, singers, you can't fool them. When they hear a song, they can tell right away if it's going to make them sound good. What made this <laughs> role sound good to you? Oh man! Well, he he was right. <laughs> if there's nothing, <laughs> if 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 there is uh, anything true, it's that we're going to know what's uh, going to work for our voices for sure. Um, this one, you know, I I will say the thing that absolutely drew me to this one was how perfectly bubbly and kitschy this representation of Julia was. Um, I happen to be, I, I, I would never call myself a chef, but uh, a fairly well-accomplished home chef. I love to cook. Um, and so the idea of getting to embody just one of the great American chefs uh, was was first and foremost the reason I wanted to, to to really sing this. But I, you know, when you look into the score, it really does. He Lee Hoiby wrote this in a way where you really get all of the the parts of the character from the top of the voice to the bottom of the voice, and it's just so much fun. So uh, before we talk more about it, I think. I was saying to you and to others that when I first heard there was an operetta about Julia, I was kind of like my first, and especially one that's crafted, you know, straight from an episode of The French Chef. So it's not just someone's fantasy or creation <laughs> of Julia. It's this reenactment in some ways. So I was, you know, my first reaction, I was surprised and then I was delighted. And then I was confused because I couldn't <laughs> imagine what on earth would that sound like. So I thought it would help if first we played, and this is specifically you as Julia in this new production. So I thought we'd listen to the the opening of the. It's a, it's not the interlude, but it's the opening of the show. <laughs> 
Today we're going to make chocolate cake. And it's a very special, very chocolatey, bittersweet, lovely cake. And for it, we have to have melted chocolate. And melted chocolate, you have to do very carefully, or it's going to turn grainy and hard. <laughs> so I think, A, it's lovely to listen to, but I, it's opera. You know, it's not some <laughs> sort of, you know, I and I love that, that that shows that. So since it is truly an opera, operatic performance do you prepare for it the same way you would any traditional major opera role or is it is it different in certain ways well it's it's very similar and very different in some ways uh the music for this is actually quite hard um it took me gosh when i was learning this probably three weeks to really solidly learn the music for it which is actually a long time in my book for a 20-minute opera (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, it just, it, it was Lee Hoiby's writing, while it sounds very tonal, it sounds very accessible, you're not uh, confused by what you're listening to, it, it is quite difficult to to learn. He's got some tricks and turns in there. But, you know, I, I honestly think that Julia herself is an operatic character, for mm. sure. Like I, I just think her personality is so over the top. Her 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 presentation, you know. Of course, we all know how she was a very tall woman, and and you know had this kind of operatic voice that she spoke in. I, I know the the very uh, opening words of this entire thing is the introduction of you know. Today we're going to make le gâteau au chocolat luminous brun. You know, and even <laughs> just listening to this episode when I was preparing this, I, I, I just, I, I absolutely pressed pause and started cracking up <laughs> because it was just so perfect. You know, I, I had to basically almost do nothing except for, you know, make sure that I, I mixed the ingredients correctly and uh, was in time with the music because Julia herself is an opera character for sure. No, that's that that definitely makes sense to me. So we'll come back to that a little bit. But I also wanted to ask you the other thing that we know that if you haven't ever seen someone perform this or is that it also involves one other extra task, which is that you literally have to cook and sing opera at the same time. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a challenge. I'm not going to lie. Because <laughs> I was going to say I. I'm not a huge opera connoisseur, but I've been to several. I know the classics. And is it actually harder than than doing Verdi or Mozart? Or is it scaled down so it's just hard in a different way? It's definitely hard in a different way. Um, when, when you're doing something like Verdi or Wagner, it, it's all about focusing your attention on the voice. What are you doing to get the text and the voice out there across the orchestra? This one, it's not so much that, but it is, you know, how do I crack an egg and get the egg whites separated from the egg yolk in time with the music and, you know, make sure that there's no egg yolks in the egg whites because then the egg whites won't uh, f- mount up. <laughs> 
Yeah, so, so we should we should say that the because the operetta is a reprise of an actual episode, there's a little cheating where they combine stuff together, but for all intents and purposes, it is an episode and you're doing and you're you're essentially singing what Julia said in the episode and doing everything Julia is cooking and teaching in the episode, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. From the very first moment, and the the additional challenge really is that there's only so much time that was written into the music for things with the <laughs> ingredients to happen. So one of the greatest challenges that the audience would hopefully never know <laughs> is that the very first thing we do in this opera is uh, to to start to melt the chocolate to be able to fold into the batter. Uh, and, it, and it starts from literally just water, a little bit of uh, espresso, like instant coffee powder and uh, chocolate. And you have to put the lid on the pot and you have to set it aside. And then you have to you know, pray to whatever God is above that the chocolate is actually going to melt uh, because you have only you know, a, a few minutes between that and when you musically get to discovering that the chocolate has melted for it to melt. You know, so little little bits like that that make it a little difficult. I, I will say that there are only a couple of points that are actually uh challenging in 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 the way that I wish that Lee might have given a little bit more time or something like that. But, it, it, you know, the magic of theater and the magic of film, we were able to make that happen. No, no problem whatsoever. <laughs> because how often in a regular opera, I mean, certainly opera, unlike just singing or performing as a singer, involves acting, involves props, involves moving and coordinating with the other performers. But is it rare that you're sort of singing an aria and having to do, is it divided up or just depends on the opera? It really depends on the opera and it really depends on the director. Some, some of, uh, <laughs> some of them, you know, prefer a really just stand there and sing approach and have everything else moving around you. Mm. Uh, I actually don't prefer that. I'm, I'm much more of a stage animal. I really like the storytelling element of the acting that goes into it. So I, I much prefer something that has me quite active <laughs> in the middle of it. But even still, like there is, I, I cannot think of one other opera ever that I, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm scouring my brain at this point, and I can't think of any other opera that requires this amount of coordination, and certainly no others that require cooking skills. <laughs> yeah, you know. Not, I, and I, not, not very traditional to the world of, world of opera. Not at all, not at all. I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm very, very glad that I actually love to cook, but... I actually am not much of a baker. So this was a real challenge for me in some ways. Uh, <laughs> it being a, you know, a souffle-like cake. I will say that before I got into actually doing this opera for the first time, I sat down at home and decided to, uh, to, <laughs> to do this recipe just to see if it was, you know, something that I could do. And what I came out with were two very, very delicious chocolate pancakes. <laughs> because my my souffle like cake did not rise at all. <laughs> mm. There's either trouble with the egg whites or the folding. It very possibly. It could have been either. Like I said, not much of a baker over here. <laughs> well, but I have to say the amazing thing about this opera, first of all, being an opera singer is incredibly difficult and skilled. Doing television, particularly when it's all one run through, incredibly difficult. Cooking a cake with egg whites and you've Lee Hoibe decided to combine all of those things it's <laughs> like I mean incredible that anybody could do it 
<laughs> well, I, I, I enjoy doing it, you know, even if it's the, you know, a, a challenge in a way. I've certainly gotten quite used to this recipe, having done <laughs> this opera quite a number of times since about 2000 and, oh gosh, oh man, 13 before that, maybe 12. I mean, it's it's been a, a little while since I've been doing it. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So how, I mean, you can say how, it doesn't need to be exact, but you, you have performed this many times before this production with the Houston Grand Opera. Was it something you decided you wanted to do or did someone bring it to you and say, hey, what about this? Or how did you first kind of encounter it? Yeah. So the first time I saw this was actually when I was in undergrad. I was at a small liberal arts college in my hometown called Shorter College. And they brought in a recitalist, uh, a wonderful mezzo to come in and, and do a recital. And she ended up doing Bon Appetit as part mm. of her recital. And she did a, a completely dry version, no making of any cake. It was all imaginary. Um, but I, it, it didn't matter at all. It, I, I, I sat there and watched this and I was like, gosh, I want to do that. that. That seems like so much fun. Um, and fast forward years later, I was talking with Ned Canty, who is a, a wonderful director. I've done a, a lot of comedies with Ned, mm. uh, but he's also the general director of Opera Memphis. And we were talking and we were just kind of, you know, spitballing some dream projects. And I said, you know, this is, you know, not the typical dream project, but I've always wanted to do Bon Appetit by Lee Hoibe. And he said, you know what? I, I do another opera by Lee Hoiby. Why don't we put this together as a part of a one-act opera festival for Opera Memphis? And you can come in and we'll actually put this together and uh, you can have access to my staging from here on to, you know, the rest of history. And so I went to Opera Memphis and did Bon Appetit for the very first time and it just was so much fun. It was, he had one of those old school kind of uh, cameras, like a, t- a TV filming camera uh, on the side of the stage. We had a, the, it's a very short uh, kind of small orchestra that is written in for this if you choose to do it with orchestra. But they were in the pit. We happened to have a conductor, Stephen Osgood, who had worked with Lee Hoiby uh, mm-hmm. before and so had a, a wonderful sense of his music. And we put this together for the first time, and it was just so much fun. And I, I knew at that point, I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to do this everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so one thing I wanted to talk about, because the performance that is going to be a, a, accessible for the next month is is actually recorded and, and staged. But usually the operetta or the way Lee Hoiby wrote it, it was to be performed live in one act and one run through, right? Yes, yes. In fact, I'm pretty sure that this might be the very first film version of this. Certainly, it's been, you know, filmed from when somebody has been doing it on stage as a live performance. But this is the first film adaptation of this uh, little operetta. Well, as I said, Julia's inspiration knows no limits. And so I want, so when you performed it for Opera Memphis, that was live in yes. one, one through. And yes. so... I was curious, and that's the way I've noted, and then getting a preview of, of this performance, 
it is filmed, as we just said, but I wanted to talk to you about kind of the differences and if it enabled you to do certain things that you hadn't been able to do before or if it made it easier. Could you kind of compare and contrast? Absolutely. Oh, there are definitely, there were for sure some benefits to being able to do this. Number one, we got to wait as long as we wanted until the chocolate melted. (laughs) (laughs) You know, plenty of takes for that to happen. Um, You know, so, so little elements like that were a lot of fun. The challenge actually came in when we were trying to do any sort of uh, hopping around within the score. If we needed to go back and do a take uh, uh, starting up one section, we would have to make sure that the, the, the set looked like I had cooked up until that point. Um, rather than we had already been beyond that point and we were going back to that point. So, you know, it was little, little, uh, challenges that I'm, I, I'm sure people who do film are very used to all the time. Um, but I was the, the person on set who really knew the score back and forth. So I could say, okay, at this point, okay, we don't have the egg whites. We haven't separated the eggs. So we need eight eggs in this bowl so I can grab one and we need four in these, you know, just. <laughs> To be able to parse it out, and Ryan and Tanya McKinney, the directors of this film adaptation, were just so wonderful to work with. I mean, the ideas were spot on, I think, and uh, they they were so so helpful uh, with all of these little like minutia details that uh, <laughs> seem to uh, crop up every once in a while. Of oh gosh, okay, we need to make sure I have a chocolate spot on my shirt because that happened in the last take. <laughs> You know, those little kinds of things. Yeah. So because actually, it, so in that way, it's harder because you actually have to have more versions of everything and to restage things. Because when you're doing it live, there's one mess and it just is what it is and you carry on. Absolutely. Absolutely. This show, even if you're doing it live and just doing it once through, is already very challenging from the props side of things, uh, not just in terms of having, uh, you know, the right measurements of cream of tartar and salt and sugar and uh, cornstarch and all of that kind of stuff out. But uh, when you're doing it in a film version, especially, you need to make sure you have about quadruple the amount of ingredients that you need to be able to do because uh, you're going to have to do multiple takes and that's going to require a lot of groceries. <laughs> And when you performed it live, did you have you always done it with real food and real cooking or or have you done it every which way? For the most part, for for the most part, I've done it with the the real cooking. It, it really just adds something for the audience to be able to see all of these little, you know, I, I keep on calling it food network moments, you know, where mm-hmm. you're showing no, them how to so. do things. Um I did do it one time uh, on Fire Island, uh, actually at one of the the bars on Fire Island on the Pine side. Uh, And so I was set up behind the bar and the audience was actually the dance floor that had been, uh, you know, they had put out seats. And so with that one, there wasn't uh, the availability to be able to do the egg white race. 
Um, but at the very end, we had a cake that was set behind the bar and some icing. And so I uh, took the cake out and produced it as this, you know, this is what was produced from this imaginary uh, 15 minutes of your life where I was, you know, pretending to mix things together. Um, and it was so funny because I, I kind of wasn't sure how the audience would react having not seen any of the process leading up to the cake. But the moment that I took the cake out, I heard this, oh, <gasps> kind of gasp come from the audience and everybody was like oh it's a cake <laughs> well that yeah gratifying you would you would deliver the performance then right <laughs> even without the 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 process going up to it which is the magic of this particular little opera <laughs> all right we're going to take a break and we'll come right back with opera star jamie barton to talk more about playing julia and bon appetit stay with us This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back. We're talking to opera singer Jamie Barton about playing Julia in the Houston Grand Opera's new performance of Lee Hoiby's Bon Appetit, which debuted November 27, 2020. So one thing, or if you've just fast forwarded or joining us now, the show is a lot of fun. It's both a lot of fun for the audience, but it's also a lot of fun and hard work for the performer. And one thing that I think is amazing about what Lee Hoiby crafted is it really showcases Julia's inherent wit. It's not a parody, although it gets a bit silly at times. And one of the things that I think moments in the play that Jamie's already talked about in the first half are referenced is the egg white race, which is also sort of hard to imagine until you hear it. So I thought, um, Jamie, maybe you could describe what it is and where it comes in the show, and then we'll listen to a clip of, of the opening of it. Absolutely, absolutely. So the egg white race, it, it's funny, this entire opera is based on, I believe, episode eight of season five of her show. Uh, and 
except for this tiny little bit where she, Lee Hoiby decided to bring in this egg white race that she does on another episode of her show, where she decides to uh, race herself against the stand mixer and seeing who can get the egg whites to peak the quickest. Um, fun fact, knowing how much time is in, in the music within the opera, I can guarantee you the stand mixer beats Julia every time <laughs> in my experience. <laughs> but you get this really hilarious kind of frantic sounding music while she's frantically whipping these egg whites and uh, throwing sugar and salt and, and cream of tartar into this. And it is just chaotic and absolutely deliciously fun. All right, let's 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 have a listen to the egg white race. Frankly, I find that you can beat the eggs just as efficiently with a hand beater as with anything. So today, we're going to have some fun. We're going to have a race between the online copper bowl and the machine. I've got four egg whites here. And four egg whites here, and we're going to see who wins. And I think maybe I'll win, because I'm bigger, but I don't know. You're going to start rather slowly at first. (laughs) <laughs> it's so it's really fun and again i it's amazing about those performances it always sort of nears parody but it, it parody yeah parody but it 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 isn't satirizing julia it's really capturing how she was fun how she was witty how she was zany but of course she's actually teaching something and in fact you could even learn something from this performance no i i would hope so i you know when when we were really getting into building how to do Julia as an opera character when Ned and I were talking about this. I I went in with the idea of we're going to do exactly Julia from this episode. We're going to, you know, be just exactly her. And the more we got to talking about it and really uh, thinking about Julia, the more we really discussed how Julia is uh, she, she's a conglomerate in so many of our minds, right? It's not just Julia Child. It's also Meryl Streep doing Julia or Dan Aykroyd doing Julia Child. Um, and so we decided to go with the idea of an homage, not really a parody, but uh, certainly something to pay homage to the the character that I think the collective whole has in their head of Julia Child. Uh, and I think that works with Lee Hoiby's music. Uh, his music is kind of kitschy, uh, which which definitely brings in a little bit more of the Dan Aykroyd for me. <laughs> but it was, you know, it's, it's just such a, a fun little homage to somebody who, gosh, is just so dear to to me personally as somebody who really respects uh cooking and chefs and and that sort of thing uh but also to the collective whole i think in our country she's such a a part of our american history and uh you can be as kitschy and fun as you like but at the end of the day she's the one who uh <laughs> who wins the prize i think <laughs> i think that's a great 
great way to phrase it because I think we at the foundation do are always encountering people who have specific memories that may or may not exist, but they're real for them. And like you said, they're often like, I was like, I think you're mixing Dan Aykroyd up with the real Julia, (laughs) but Julia never minded. And I think you made the excellent point that like what Julia means to every individual is what she means to them, even if it's an amalgamation of, you know, performances about Julia or Julia performing, which she absolutely is in The French Chef, even though she's genuine, when Julia was the host of a show, I mean, she was putting on a performance. She That's what made her good at teaching, was she was entertaining to watch at the same time, and she knew that. Absolutely. You know, and I think that that's one of the reasons she was so successful with what, what she did, you know, introducing you know, what is basically haute cuisine, you know, the, the very fine cooking to America, to to people who were, uh, you know, raising families. You you can also uh, cook beef bourguignon. You, you can cook le gâteau au chocolat, les minos brunes. You know, you, you can cook all of these things that have really, really, really fancy titles. Here, let me show you how. She, she I, I, I've always just been so in love with how approachable she was. Um, you know, even through her operatic demeanor, she, she just felt like, as you were saying, it, it was very clear that she was trying to teach, you know, that she, she wanted us to, to be able to have these skills. Um, and I think that's part of the magic of Julia. Can we just go back to the egg whites for a second? So on Food Network, I think there are a few people taping a show who would not use the machine to whip egg whites. And <laughs> Even with the even and the other problem with the machine on a microphone is it makes a bloody lot of noise. So it's a real technical challenge, but you'd still do it because whipping egg whites in a copper bowl by hand is quite physically demanding, but yet part of the show. Is this literally the hardest part of the show? For me, it is. It really, really is. Uh, both the from the cooking side of things, technically demanding. Like I said, I, I, I never. I, I think maybe once I came very close to beating the machine, <laughs> <laughs> but for the most part, there's just no way to do it. Not in the amount of time that's in the score. But that's the other the, the other challenge is that I'm I'm doing this while trying to count. Uh, where I'm supposed to be coming in and saying little bits of phrases. And it's actually very complicated music. So you have to figure out this this rhythm. You have to uh, understand how many big beats are in between when you come in and uh, also just, you know, really embrace the fact that the machine is going to beat you every single time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and Julia loved these kind of challenges. So I think it's great. And well, maybe this feeds into the next question that I wanted to ask you. Uh, um, Lee Hoiby died a several years ago but yeah. i was curious what what not so much thinking and answering for him but from your point of view do, do you have a kind of perspective of why you think lee hoiby was fascinated by julia and decided to do this and not only decided to write an opera or operetta about julia but to do it in this very specific uh, way and format that we've been talking about well you know i I in I can only answer from uh, the little bits of research that I've done and the conversations that I've done. I know that he just adored Gene Stapleton, uh, the actress that he wrote this for. Um, and I think that they talked through several different uh, versions of what what 
episode of The French Chef that they could do with Julia. Uh, I the, the, the rumor that I've heard is that her idea was that they do beef bourguignon, actually, uh, rather than this chocolate cake. And I the first time I heard that, I just absolutely cracked up because, man, that would be a Wagner-length opera at that point. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way around that. <laughs> the idea of trying to do and an the opera. the next day. <laughs> Exactly. You know, trying to do an opera while you have meat on your hands is, is <laughs> not exactly an appetizing thing, I think, either for the singer or for the audience. But um, Julia Child was a, a part of deciding which episode was going to be a part of this. And so I, I can only imagine that uh, Lee had a tremendous respect for her uh, and and for her opinions on this. And uh, I'm just, I'm delighted that she was a a part of the decision-making of which uh, recipe would end up going into it. And quite honestly, this, I I think, is just the perfect recipe. It's just approachable enough, you know, a chocolate cake, very approachable for most people, including the, the singer on stage and the people in the audience, but also, you know, has enough of those moments of hilarity of, you know, trying to get the egg whites to rise, you know, trying to get uh, everything folded in, in particular, uh, the, the the folding in of the ingredients for the batter is actually one of the harder parts because God bless Lee, but he didn't uh, compose a, uh, enough time there. <laughs> so, you know, there <laughs> He didn't just... bother himself trying to make the fold work and have the cake come out. That, that, that did not fit the timing he was looking for. It's entirely possible, you know, and they, I, I think it, it works really well that he kept it within 20 minutes. You know, this was as long as the episode was, which is really quite extraordinary if you think about it, adding operatic timing along with actual cooking show timing. I mean, it's, it, that's quite a feat. But uh, just from the detail that I can see in the score, being the singer who's doing it, there, nothing that he wrote was superfluous. It, it it all added to the final recipe of this opera, if that makes any sense. Um, and I, I wish I could have worked with him uh, while he was alive, but uh, I, I I have certainly enjoyed getting to sing this, uh, even though he is no longer around to hear it. Well, I think we really appreciate you raising it to um, the top of its game and exploring it from every angles because I think the more you understand it because I think it's it's easy to be slightly dismissive of it seeing it quickly as just like a trifle when actually it's as we've just discussed difficult to do and it was written it's complicated yes yes very (laughs) so before we take our our next break I did want to ask you I'll ask you because you've said you do cook and like cooking which obviously gives you a maybe deeper relationship or desire for the material is now do you have to follow a certain kind of training regimen or certain diet to keep your voice in shape as an opera singer or does that just depend on the person it really is so, so, so individual. Um, it's There are some people who, you know, before performances can't have dairy, can't have bread, can't have meat, can't have vegetables. You know, it's, it's super, super uh, just subjective to the person. I happen to be pretty... Uh, 
I, I, I won't, I, I'm allergic to wheat, so I don't, you know, do any bread or pasta or anything like that. Um, but before performances, I, I'm pretty much just going to be pounding the water <laughs> is where I'm going to be. Um, you know, if I have an evening performance, I might have a meal at about three o'clock, uh, you know, something, a good size lunch uh, that will get me through the, the opera. If it's a very long opera, I might bring along snacks. That's always a thing. Um, but for the most part, my, my stomach and my body are pretty easy and I don't have to really, really worry about uh, having neurotic bodily reactions to having food. Just about the only thing I don't want is to be full on stage. Gosh, that'd be awful. <laughs> yes, I, I think you, you, it, you, like everything else you're talking, it's all about timing, right? Anything? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. After the break, Jamie's going to share her own Julia moment. The new book of Julia's quotes, People Who Love to Eat Are Always the Best People and Other Wisdom, is out now in hardcover and ebook from Knopf. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show and share your ideas for future guests. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. We've kind of outfoxed Jamie since we've just been talking about a giant Julia <laughs> moment. But, but for the record, Jamie, what is your Julia moment? Well, the one that comes to mind for me is actually my favorite picture of Julia, uh, which is a picture of her on her cooking set. And clearly she is turned and looking at the camera, but this is a picture from the side and it's an iconic picture of all of her tech crew kind of crouched behind the set, just waiting to hand her whatever instruments she needs to be able to make whatever she's making for this episode. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I mean, I knew that I loved that photo anyway. It's just a, it's a brilliant photo. But gosh, after doing this opera and after understanding how much goes into teaching uh, the, the cooking that she's doing on each episode, man, I wish I had a couple of people crouch down below the <laughs> set. <laughs> there was a new respect for that, absolutely, when I uh, started doing this opera. But I've, I've always loved that photo from the perspective of being a performer, because there is so much that the audience doesn't see. There's so much that uh, goes into making a performance really come to life that has nothing to do with the performer. Uh, very often it has to do with the artisans and the crew members and the hair and makeup artists and, the, you know, the hundreds of people behind the sets uh, that are really making it happen. So I've always, always, always loved that photo. But man, it it just came to uh, have a different meaning once I started doing this opera. (laughs) Oh, that's so great. And it comes to my mind that is right. Even a one woman show is not just one woman to pull it off. (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) Oh, that's such a great state. Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, and thank you for bringing Julia back to life and for this performance and for joining us today. 
Oh, it's such a pleasure. Truly. Thank you so much for having me on. Our pleasure. So the Houston Grand Opera's HGO Digital, and I'm not saying HBO, it's HGO as in grand, a double bill performance of Bon Appetit starring Jamie Barton as Julia and presented alongside Mozart's The Impresario will be streamed back to back, available free to the public until the end of December 2020. So you can access it via a computer, a tablet, a smartphone. You just need to log in to hgo.org, or you can get it through marquee.tv. And you can also stream it on uh, the Marquee TV television app, which is on Roku, Apple TV, Fire TV, possibly other services. If you want to learn more about Jamie Barton and the other roles she plays and what uh, else she sings, you can visit jamiebartonmezzo.com. And she's at jbartonmezzo on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want more information on the HGO Digital Sarah and Ernest Butler Performance Series, go to hgo.org, or you can also check out at Houston Grand Opera on Facebook and at HOU Grand Opera on Twitter and Instagram. As always, keep up with the foundation and new podcast episodes. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH, and the audio clips from Bon Appetit are from Houston Grand Opera. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer, Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. If you can do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, all the better. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.